Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg is being sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. For a 360-degree view of investor mandate activity across alternative investments, turn to Alternatives Watch. Vidrio Financial is the first technology-enabled service for allocators looking to harness investment complexity and make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That is V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation and Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Paul Sohn of Montalto will join us. Uh, I've known Paul for some time as we were colleagues together at Soros, uh, where we were both portfolio managers. Uh, so it's really nice to, uh, to have him on this. Um, so listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. We'll start with some background, then discuss investing, ESG, and technology. Investors and business leaders should be able to extract a great deal of value from Paul's insight. On that note, welcome, Paul. Thanks, Michael. Good to see you again. Yeah, same. Uh, look, why? Obviously, I know your background intimately from from when you were at Yale before Soros to 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 today, uh, Kingdon and various places between. Um, but why, why don't you give listeners a brief version of of your background as you like? Great. Yeah, as you as you mentioned, you were there when I started, so I came directly into the hedge fund industry out of undergrad in 1999, uh, where we worked together at Soros. And I was thinking about it. I'll di- I want to digress for a second because it's hard to, hard to imagine at that time, I'd say less than half of my fellow economics graduates at Yale even knew what a hedge fund was. There was, there was great shock and awe that I would turn down and offer it a consultancy like McKinsey to go to this, th- to go to this thing called a hedge fund. Uh, just kind of—I I mentioned that because it just tells you how far we've come. Um, obviously, the industry has evolved tremendously over the last 20 years, and we've been kind of part of that. And I've kind of had a front row seat. So I was at Soros in '99. Uh, unfortunately, they—they kind of blew up about nine months later, as has been well documented. Soros was one of the last buyers of the '99 tech bubble, um, but. Uh, that was an opportunity for me because I had the opportunity to go with Stan Druckenmiller to his his fund, Duquesne. And that's where I first became a portfolio manager in the tech space. Uh, my next stop was Kingdom Capital. I went there in 2006. In seven years, I managed a tech fund. Um, but then I broadened out. I had a macro overlay and more of a generalist. And then finally, I, I did another stint at Soros. So I went back to Soros in 2012 uh, to work with CIO Scott Besant, who we both know. Um, and I ran what was called the best ideas portfolio. And the idea of that portfolio was sizing up and finding kind of the best ideas from inside and outside the firm and kind of right sizing them for, for the very large, uh, balance sheet. Uh, and then finally in 2017, I left Storos. I started my own family office. As you mentioned, it's called Montalto Capital. Um, I've done some private investing out of that sleeve. Um, uh, but really today my, my focus, uh, I found for me, the kind of spray and pray kind of investing is not the most effective way to do things. And I, I'm really focused on two different things. One, I started a Greek focused fund and we can talk about that later, but it really aligns with a lot of my principles in investing. Uh, that's called Hellenic Prosperity Partners. I started that with a co-founder, Dimitri Chalvatsiosis, who came out of Millennium. And then I've started several companies over my career. The one that I'm focused on now and that I'm chairing, I started with some partners in 2017 
is a generic pharmaceutical business actually uh, called Argentum Pharmaceuticals. Um, and that's another side of my, my professional life now. Interesting. And, and I'll tell you what's funny when you, on your digression, um, the, the contrast, because I had come from Soros, as, as you'll no doubt recall from Columbia Business School, and, and it, my colleagues were also odd, except they were odd that I, had, that I had been so lucky and fortunate to get the role at Soros because they all wanted it. They all knew. So it's funny, the contrast between Yale sort of liberal arts undergrad and Columbia Business School. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really I, funny. I think, I think that's a great, great dichotomy. And I'll just add one other story. You know, the convincing blow that decide, that made me decide to go to Soros over McKinsey was on my McKinsey cell weekend when one of the associates who was trying to recruit me said, you had an offer at Soros? Well, you got to take that. <laughs> so, <laughs> not, 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 a, not a very effective McKinsey cell weekend for them. That's hysterical. Do you, uh, yeah. is, do you remember who it was? Or I'm not asking you to say, but is <laughs> he still there? He, he, may, he may have changed my life. I don't even remember his name. So it's, oh, well. Yeah, that's just that's great. That's that's even better. Anyway, um, when I when I got the offer, I said I'd like to think about it, and and uh, and I won't say who. And the and the person at Soros was like, "What do you mean you're thinking about it? You're, you're not just accepting." I'm like, "Well, you know, it's like anything in life. You got you got to think about these things." And, and then obviously, I accepted. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, all right. Look, let's get to the 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 point of this podcast. Let's talk about um, let's talk about uh, innovation and investing ESG and technologies. But let's start with this. How are you? innovating if at all to improve alpha f- from an investment perspective yeah well it's funny i think the word innovation and i know it's the name of your podcast so no one's so it's necessary but i'm not sure it's innovation that drives alpha i think a lot of the tenets that drive you know successful long-term investing have been around for quite some time it's just being able to recognize them and have the discipline uh to do so is very important of course there's always innovations you know the quants and everything else but you know, for me, I think the most important thing is to really figure out what you're good at, what your edge is, and focus maniacally on that to build consistent alpha. Um, and what that is, you know, it's hard to define how different people uh, have different different tacks there. For me, one, one tenet that I believe very strongly in, in right now is something I'll call time arbitrage. And that is, I think a lot of the alpha has been squeezed out of the markets. Um, you know, as Charlie Munger says, too many smart people with too much capital trying to outsmart each other right now. And I think that's why you've seen seen it be very difficult for these traditional hedge funds and pools of capital to really outperform. Um, my view has always been go where the go where most people are not, right? So if you have some very high percentage of the capital being managed in a particular way, and that is the high sharp month to month, quarter to quarter uh, type way take your ball and go to another field. And the field that I think has been effective for me and that I really like um, is kind of this long-term, um, the ability to, to invest over kind of a longer-term basis than the majority of capital. And it's not easy to do, right? Because just about everyone talks about long-term investing, um, but very few actually practice it, right? And that was one frustration I had at Soros, right? We're a $40 billion family office so by definition, infinite duration capital, and you could say the same thing for these college endowments and others, um, but we were running money just like every other hedge fund on the street, right? And I, I thought that was not the optimal way for that type of pool of capital. Um, so it's hard. So you have to really align yourself with capital providers, LPs, partners, who, who don't just say they're long-term investors, but actually practice it as well. 
And then the second hard thing about that type of investing, and I, I believe this is a Druckenmiller quote, but, you know, wait for the fat pitch and swing hard. Um, makes sense, right? But very, very hard in an institutional setting, right? And what I mean is hard is the wait for the fat pitch part. Like, as you know, Michael, you just simply cannot turn to your LPs and say, you know what? I don't really have a great idea right now. But the reality is most of the time, as I look back on my career and when I've generated alpha, you know, it was really a time to sit back. It's just those moments that come, you have to prepare and be ready. And it takes a lot of work to be ready for them. Um, you have to be ready to really lean in to the big trades and the big pitches that are asymmetric, you know, by asymmetric, I mean, lots of upside and limited downside. And that, as I look back on my career, that's what I've done quite well. And it's not the, you know, every month when the market's up 1%, I'm up 1.1%. It's, you know, protecting capital, risk managing, and then being there to, to really outperform when your ship comes in. I mean, the most famous example there, and it's one that I was very intimately involved in, which of course everyone knows about, is is the housing short in 2007. Uh, I brought that into Kingdon, um, and it was a hugely asymmetric trade, and it was based on what I'm talking about. You had a situation where the market was wrong, and in this case, they were wrong about the concept that that housing broadly can never go down. And once you identified that the market was wrong, it, then it became a uh, an experiment in how do you monetize it and when do you monetize it? And the timing part is always the hardest thing in these trades. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, currently I spend a lot of my time and, and a lot of my capital is is with my Greek fund, HPF, Hellenic Prosperity Fund. Very similar concept. Obviously, in many ways, totally different from the housing short, but similar in that my partner and I identified this as, as the biggest opportunity on the planet right now. And if you could take a long-term view, we think there's there's an ability to have real outsized alpha over multiple years by mon by monetizing this, and that's and that's what we're doing right now. So that's how I approach it. That's where I think alpha can be had. Um, not necessarily every day looking for innovation in the in the more typical way you think about it in technology and other places. Yeah, so four things you said I'll, I'll, that resonated or I'll, I'll, I'll comment on. One is, um, yeah, look, irrefutably, I think markets have come immensely more efficient, in particular, I think, since you and I last worked together in 2000. And, and I think there are two reasons. One, Reg FD, which you know came about right about then. And then two, the internet. If you think back to the old days where people like our former colleagues like Nick Roditi, you know, used to have people in the in the Gulf counting oil tankers, right? They were, you know, now you know, you go to oiltanker.com and it's it's free and anyone in the world can see, you know, how many oil tankers there are in the world, how full they are, where they are. So so that's one point. Um two is um yeah, look, it's at, at Columbia Business School where I teach as an adjunct for, you know, the past decade. Um, one of the things we teach is exactly what you said, which is that notion of alignment. And it's like Columbia Business School type value investing is great as long as your underlying clients or investors are willing to say, yeah, you know what? It's down, you know, like Buffett or Munger. It's down 50%, but that's great because it was worth 200% you know, of NAV, I'm talking here, or net asset value. Yep, and yep. so if it's down 50, it, great, I can buy it at half price and I'll make 3x from that and average down. Mm -hmm. And then the third point I'd make is... Um, you know, what you described that that 1.2, like when you were saying, you know, you, you may be making, you know, 1.2% versus 1% a month from the market. And, and that's not the way to sort of or not ideal in your view, which I 
I don't necessarily disagree to compound money over time or make the most money or have the best risk adjusted returns. You know, ironically, that's what most institutional investors want now with the, you know, you're at Kingdon, which is sort of a pod model, um, you know, with the pods like the Ballyasnies and Schoenfelds and 0.72s and Citadels and, you know, Magnetars, you know, that's what investors want these days. And then, and then the fourth point I'll make is um, regarding what you said on housing. Yeah, look, the timing is everything, right? I mean, y- you and I both, I believe, uh, had some involvement with, with some of Kyle Bass's uh, invest funds. And, and I'll never forget, at least for, for myself, um, it, you know, at one point in one of those funds, the, the, the Japanese you know, bear trade on the, the yen and JGBs and, you know, the, the nat it was down 90% with like almost, a, I think a month. You remember? Yeah. You remember that? It was down yeah. 90%, nine zero with a month to go. And we got lucky with Ab- Abenomics and, and, and we made back, you know, a thousand percent, which, which left us with a, I think a 10% return over like three or five years. So an average of 2% a year with, you know, 90% volatility and we got lucky on the timing. So, yeah, I think I think you've broached a lot of good points there. So, Mike, let me let me comment on two things you just said. I mean, I mean, one part of alpha generation is actually risk management, right? And I think about the Greek fund where we've captured a lot of alpha. Um, you know, this year the Greek market is one of the top performing in in the world, and say it's up thirty five percent, and we're up fifty. So that's alpha. But the reason we were able to capture that alpha is because the last two years, when the market was not as strong and was quite volatile. Uh, we generated alpha through that period, which allowed us to stay alive to capture the 2023 performance and hopefully the next two years. Um, also on technology, what you said resonated with me quite a bit. Um, I wouldn't say I'm any type of expert in using technology to generate performance, uh, but the world did, has changed to a point where you you have basically unlimited inf- information flow. So I totally agree with you with that. And access to information is not the differentiator. Maybe technology can be used to help sort and optimize that information, and we'll see. But you know, one area which is pure technology is quant, which you know I've heard you talk about it, Michael. Everyone's very excited about it. To me, that is an area that is a bit of a rigged game in that the big guys are sucking up all the alpha in that world, right? They have these these essentially nuclear weapons of of quant alpha generation, and I just huh. I just think that's an area where the little guys really don't stand a chance. And, uh, you know, over the years, and I'm sure you've seen this too, I've been pitched a number of strategies where you have a couple of very smart PhDs who have, you know, back-tested a strategy that's going to capture all this alpha. And I just don't think that intellectually makes sense to me uh, as a sustainable alpha generator. So I've, I've always passed on those and, and will continue to do so. Got it. Um, look, look, let's, you've mentioned it at least twice. Why don't we, why don't we just talk briefly about just very briefly, like what's your thesis on the Greek recovery trade? I know you've had it for some time. And and is that still where you see the, you know, to quote Stan, who we both work for, and I think have immense respect for, is is that where you see the, uh, the, the fat pitch right now? It is. I think, I think it's the biggest opportunity on the planet and I could talk for two hours on it, but I'll, I'll go for two minutes. Um, Perfect. Essentially, essentially Greece has been a counter-cyclical economy over the last cycle. Uh, while the rest of the West was from 2008 to call it 2020-21, has been expanding and the markets have been going up, Greece was in the equivalent of our Great Depression. Uh, you know, their GDP was down 35%, massive political turmoil. And when I when I dusted it off in 2007 with my partner, Dimitri, we realized and we thought and we predicted that cycle was about to turn. So you had what was essentially the cheapest market on the planet, and it still is today. This is a market, this will be the fastest growing economy 
in Europe and in the West, um, that is the cheapest, you know, seven times profit multiple, a 15% free cash flow yield, the sub book value level on the Buffett metric, it's 18% market cap to GDP. It's just one, it's the cheapest market in the world on any metric. And the disconnect, and I talked earlier, you know, the disconnect in housing was that the market was wrong, that housing could never go down. The disconnect in Greece is that everyone looks at it through the rearview mirror. They have a very historical perspective. And historically, Greece has been a basket case in many ways. Um, you know, those people will say things to me like, well, Greeks don't pay taxes. So how can it be a healthy economy? And I'll say, well, they're the only country in the West that's running a current account surplus or per- close to it. So they must be collecting taxes. But, you know, the the, the biases are are all rear view facing. So you have a really strong political leadership. That's a big part of it. Uh, center right government came in and was just reelected this summer under Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who's, I think, one of the best leaders in the West. He's he's the kind of guy we wish we had more leaders like that in the West. I mean, he's a, a Stanford guy, a Harvard MBA. I think he has some McKinsey in his background. I mean, the guy is a technocrat, knows how to get things done, center right business friendly, and he's made a lot of big changes for the country that, that are a very big deal. Um, they've gotten, the country's gotten their balance sheet under under control. They've termed out their debt uh, at about 1% over 20 years. They no longer have a, a uh, you know, deficit or debt payment situation. And, you know, the country's booming and they're just lucky. I mean, they're, they're lucky geographically where they're positioned from a strategic point of view, from an energy point of view. Um, so it's kind of this thing, everything's lined up. I think whenever you find an opportunity like that in the public markets, uh, you have to ask yourself, why does it exist? And I think the answer in Greece makes sense to me. One is it's a very small country. It's very esoteric. Um, so for the larger pools of capital, it just doesn't make sense to allocate time and energy if you can't put multiple billion dollars to work on it, uh, which leaves opportunities for smaller guys like me. And the second is that you know, that anchor to the past uh, where, where people just have not realized that the country truly has changed. I mean, I was there in Athens last week. It is a clean, beautiful city and it is booming. So I feel really good uh, about about what that is and, you know, put my money where my mouth is. You know, I think it's a very big opportunity over the next kind of three, five years. And people are starting to figure it out. Uh, there have been articles in the FT, the Wall Street Journal, you know, in the last few months, but the markets have not yet really started to price it in at all. You know, um, it's ironic because when when you talk about Greece's debt to GDP and you contrast that with the US, which is at 129% as of last year, and then you talk about their deficit situation, it's like if you showed me or I think any rational investor side by side, the two, this, the metric, those fiscal metrics of the two countries side by side blind, you, you would think it's the opposite, right? You would think that that where Greece and Greece is us, right? Yeah, it's very distressing what's going on here, and and we're you know we're, we're we've been spoiled, I think, over many years as the reserve currency that we don't have to worry about it. Um, but but the numbers are are staggering right now. I don't have to tell you; everyone's seen them. Uh, you just can't run these seven percent deficits deficits uh, forever. Just it just doesn't work, right? Uh, so how that resolves itself, I think. You know, smart guys will disagree on exactly how that resolves itself. But what I can say is I'm a lot more comfortable with a country that has termed out its debt at a very low interest rate and, and has its fiscal balance sheet under order. And by the way, they they may not have done that on their own. They were forced to do that, right, by the European Union. 
right? They, they, they went through very tough austerity measures over the last decade, but they're coming out of it now on the other end. And I just don't think the problem with America is we don't have, you know, a bunch of Germans sitting in Brussels who are, who can actually tell us what to do. We have, our, I, could, our, I, I agree. Our, our, we have our Washington establishment. That's kind of not incentivized to really, you know, be adults about, about what's going on with our deficit. So it's a very different situation and, and you're exactly right. Um, up is down and down is up and that Greece is probably the most fiscally responsible <laughs> country in the West right now. Yeah, total. And, and, you know, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, the incentives here are all the exact opposite. Uh, but um, y- 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 so the other day, actually, we had a bit of a sort of informal Soros Asia reunion. And, uh, it was, you know, our former colleagues, Rodney Jones of, of Wigram now and Sheldon Kasowitz of Indus. And, um, you know, we we're talking about Japan, obviously. And I think part of the problem is that the sort of the, the, these mo- MMT, the modern monetary theory uh you know, uh, proponents over the last X years with this whole nonsense with the infinite uh, fiscal spending and looking at Japan and saying, look, the, the prop, I think part of the problem is they look at, they look at Japan and they say, look, you see, look at Japan, you can spend and spend and spend and have immense debt to GDPs and it doesn't matter. And it's like what they miss is, yeah, it doesn't matter until the market cares. And then once the market cares, as you and I know, you have a situation like, you know, the book When Money Dies, which refers to the Weimar Republic and other South American and African countries where, you know, you have hyperinflation and then and then it's game over. Yeah. Once the market cares, it's too late would be another way to say that. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, yeah. and that's what the book When yeah. Money Dies. And that's what, but anyway, um, moving on. Um, all right. So, look, the Greece sounds uber compelling. Uh, we, we touched on technology. We've touched on investing. We've touched on alpha from an investment perspective. ESG, that's another pillar of this podcast. And I know you're not a conventional ESG investor, which is fine. And, and I think there's no one right way to do ESG. There are many ways. And um, some, I think, are absolutely make no sense. Others, I think, are very sensible. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, like exclusion. I think that's just the dumbest thing on earth. Um, it, you yeah. know, engagement makes sense. Exclusion does not. But sounds like you agree on that. But you, know, you have, you have a, I believe, an in, involvement in Lone Rock Timber and and timber is highly apropos to ESG. And maybe you could contextualize it with that or start with that. Sure, sure. I think, you know, we've never had a long formation on ESG. I've listened to you on it. And my guess is we agree on some things, disagree on others. Uh, you know, the first thing I'll say is I've never been to one of those ESG conferences that seem to go on every week. So depending... Depending on your worldview, that either makes me uniquely qualified or uniquely unqualified to comment on ESG. But I'm going to I'm going to say, you know, maybe I can look at it maybe from an outsider's perspective, 30,000 feet. Um, You mentioned Lone Rock Timber. That was that's my uh, family business started by my grandfather in Oregon. And, you know, we're in the sustainable timber industry, to put it to put it lightly. Very simple. What we do, we we grow Douglas fir trees. After 40 years, we cut them down and we replant them. we plant more trees than we cut down. It's, you know, definitively the greenest and the most environmentally friendly building material, right? This country needs one and a half million new homes every year, and they have to be built out of something. And, you know, I will argue till I'm blue in the face that sustainable American harvested timber for many reasons is the best solution. Despite that, 
the environmental groups have been at war with American timber for decades. And in their view, every tree they can get us to not cut down is a win for them. And I think here's my analogy with ESG. It's, you know, pardon the offense, but it's very child brain thinking. It's first order thinking, right? It's if we can get them to not cut down a tree, we've won. But I'll say, no, you've lost, right? Because those one and a half million homes still have to be built. And now they're going to be built with plastics. They're going to be built with non-renewable metals and stone, or even worse, they're going to be built with third world timber that is not harvested sustainably. So how is that a win, right? And that's kind of where I see, and I'm talking about the environmental side of ESG, and we can get to each pillar, but, you know, ESG or the environmental side has now become almost maniacally um, focused on energy and carbon. And, you know, in some ways it's good for, for our timber business because it seems like we're we're on the back burner. We're not a huge focus. Um, but what I see going on in the energy discussion is in in some ways similar um, in that there's a lot of first order thinking. I mean, as, as you know, Michael, I married a German. I'm living in Germany for the year. They very famously shut down their nukes this year. And that's just a horrible uh, policy decision. And it's driven by this, this kind of uninformed ESG thinking um, that I don't think is very good for the country. Clearly, uh, is not a very smart energy move because nuclear is actually carbon-free. Um, but those are the kind of decisions that are being driven by some of this ESG rhetoric. And, you know, I, there's a lot of actually smart thinkers on this on this area. One of them actually goes by the pseudonym Doomberg, and he has a quote that I love. He says, <clears throat> in the war between platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated. And that's kind of a, to me, a guiding principle of the environmental side of the ESG conversation. We can talk about doing things better. You can talk about technology improvement, but going to war against the American energy industry at a time when the solutions to replace it do not realistically exist is, yeah. a, very, is a very bad strategy. It's a bad strategy for the country. It's it's a bad strategy for energy costs. It's a bad strategy for our economy. And that's what's that's when I say a lot of this, the environmental side of this conversation is misguided, is short-sighted, or is first order thinking. Uh that's kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah, look, uh first of all, I largely did agree with most, if not all of what you said. Your content <laughs> right. Your contention regarding the bull case on US timber is very compelling. Um, just to play devil's advocate, do you, you, do you like in terms of fertilizer and water usage, what's that like? Because I would think that would be an issue potentially, or, or do I have that wrong? No, I mean, Oregon, uh, there is no water usage for, for growing duck furs in Oregon. It's a very wet and damp state. And so, oh, wait, very- so yeah, so that, I mean, right there. Okay. That to me, like that's a huge, because right. Like one of the whole issues with the almond trees in California, right. And, and beef, right. Is the immense water usage, even nuclear, there's a huge amount of water usage. And, but so you've just like knocked out one of the major arguments, I'd say. <laughs> well, look, I, I agree with you. You know, you hear the stats that, what is it? Three gallons of water for every almond you eat. It just, I mean, a drought ridden California, it makes no sense. Right. So clearly you can make some adjustments on the edge of policy to, to solve for that. You know, I'm not an expert in almonds, but I think you can probably make the argument that we shouldn't be growing them in a drought area. Who knows? Um, so certainly there's, there's smart things to be, to be done around some of that stuff. Yeah. But you know, I'll tell you a funny one though. I got into an 
a, a discussion with a former colleague because the former colleague had the issue with the right the, what we're, we're joking about but though it's not necessarily funny the the almond uh the water per almond let's say in california and i said yeah okay but you know what's far worse how about coca-cola bottling and pepsi and all this the the the, the, the sweet beverage drinks in the world you know taking water from the aquifers and countries to produce drinks that i would argue are massive contributors to the obesity epidemic and from an ESG perspective, are just awful. At least almonds are healthy to eat and are, I would argue, among the best things people can eat. No disagreement there. Uh, soda. My kids don't drink soda. I'll give you that. My so kids drink very, my, my kids drink very little. Um, all right, look, and then um, look, so from a governance perspective, I don't know. I mean, that that's probably uncontroversial, right? I mean, I think we both probably agree. Ceteris Paribus, companies with better governance should do better, make more sense, be better investments in companies with worse, worse governance? Or do I have that wrong? No, look, I think governance is kind of the easy one. I think people generally define it the right way. You know, I'm all for good governance. And by that, I mean, you know, aligned incentives, accountability, performance-based compensation, and, and kind of above all, if I could use one word to define governance as I see it, it's transparency, right? So you're not, you're not slipping a contract to your brother or, or things like that. Shifting gears, uh, because we, we have some time left, but um, uh, what, 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 anything you'd avoid in, on the investment landscape now? We've, we've got a sense that you know, you're a huge Greek bull at this point, which, which is very sensible. Anything you'd avoid or you think that it, investors should stay away from? Well, look, I think you know, I'm a value investor first. Um, I'm a contrarian investor. As I've already said, I like to go where people are not. Um, but what I keep thinking about um, from where we are in the cycle is I think we're at a very massive structural and critical change in the investment landscape. And by that, I mean, we're exiting a period of 20 years, 20 plus years of free money into one where money right now is not free. Um, and so much to me, and we have a couple things there. The first is there's almost no one managing money who who remembers those days. Whoever lived, whoever invested, they lived, but never invested through inflation, through high interest rates, through that type of environment. So I think you have a lot of, of capital allocators and large capital allocators who are entering a paradigm they know nothing about, right? And that's that's worthy of some thinking. And you know, where that lands, I think you can land in a lot of different conclusions on that. But you know, take I'll, I'll just give you one example. Take large private equity right? One of the largest growing asset classes since you and I have been around, right? Last 20 years has been the golden days for growth in private equity. And, and private equity allocations are enormous at some of these pools of capital endowments and other places. Um, and I, I guess what I would say is we don't know exactly how much of the private equity returns has been driven by the fact that they've been riding with the current on lower and lower interest rates. Look, they're a long only leveraged product. That's what they're doing, right? Um, so they had all this wind at their back that every year they'd have free money or, or cheaper money than they had the year before over, over multiple decades. And if we're entering an environment where either the opposite true or at the very least they don't have that wind at their backs, at the same time that there's been a massive allocation to that asset class, I mean, I would, I would argue very strongly that you know, come check with me in 10 years that, that the next 10 years for private equity won't be as good as the last 10 or 20. 
Yeah, look, I don't disagree. And I, in fact, I think the opportunity set will be immense in private credit, actually, uh, particularly stress, distress private credit, because, you know, I think the banks are, I think the banks will have a challenging position um, lending. And um, I think to your point, PE is, is largely based on, uh, you know, well, by definition, it's levered. And, um, you know, you have, you have a multitude of companies where, um, you know, when rates, you know, with floating rate debt, where, where the, the EBITDA was servicing the debt. And now, you know, with SOFR, what, what was formerly LIBOR, having gone from, you know, close to zero to five and a half or so, um, you know, and, and then you tack on 5%, all of a sudden your EBITDA is consumed by, by debt payments. So I think if you, if you have capital and you can come out there and, and, and be a sort of stress distressed lender and, and, you know, and even possibly loan to own, um, and the same holds for real estate, I think the opportunities will be immense. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I agree. I think that's an area that there's going to be some opportunity. Um, you know, I think generally, let me, instead of just attacking private equity, let me just say, I think a lot of investment returns have been underwritten by free money, right? That was the status quo. Um, so there's going to be a lot of disruption in those spaces uh, until we figure out how much money really does cost. And, if the investments we've made or these these groups have made, whether it's in real estate, private equity, other areas, um, make sense in, in the new interest rate environment. But coming out of that, yeah, private credit, I think there, there's plenty of space for that. Look, you've been a portfolio manager for many years. Uh, quick quick one. What, what's a red flag with a manager that you, you, you just wouldn't invest? Uh, the easiest one I would say is style drift. Um, it's also pretty easy to identify. Um, you know, I guess a different way to put that would be, you know, those managers who in their actions, they don't seem to know what their edge or their alpha is. And I'm sure we've all seen these guys. They're, they're constantly buzzing from one hot strategy to the next. And I just haven't seen many people do that very effectively. I'm sure they're out there. Um, but the reality is there's always something working. Um, and if you don't have any type of structural intellectual discipline in what you're doing, um, it's very easy to be pulled from one way to the other. And you, you always want, you always see it all the time. I mean, how many people do you know who jumped into crypto at the top or any number of examples? Um, and to me, that's, that's always a red flag. I'm looking for managers uh, who know what they're good at and, and stick to it. Right. Um, and then what's a, again, shifting gears. Um, what, what's a material material mistake in your investing career that you've and a lesson learned um, for me, and you know, I, I was a tech manager for much of my career. And I think if I look back, the biggest mistake is is sometimes overcomplicating um, <laughs> what you're doing, right? I mean, honestly, the number one strategy, or if you said 20 years ago, what's the number one strategy over the next 20 years? It's, well, just buy the biggest tech mega cap and mega scalers and, and hold them. I mean, th that's been that's been the winning strategy. And of course, I've owned them all at times through my careers, but I never persistently um, just said, you know what, I'm just going to own Amazon and Google and Apple and, and go away. And it's, you know, part of it is, I think the learning for me is I am contrarian. I do like, as I said, going where others are not. And I guess sometimes where people are or where, you know, I joke, like if you asked if, you know, I have a sixth grader. If you ask a sixth grader where they should invest, <laughs> they'll say Apple, Google, and uh, Netflix, right? And it turns out 
that strategy, that sixth grader strategy beat just about every tech PM over the last 20 years. So you don't always have to overcomplicate things, I guess, is is how I would would say is my lesson learned on that. Right, right. But that that and I don't disagree, but that reminds me of, you know, when you and I were together in the tech bubble and every day we'd have an anecdote like Stan would come in and talk about, you know, either I think the taxi driver or, you know, uh, someone that was helping him out, giving stock advice or tips or, you know, my my aunt was in an investment club and my mother was in an investment club and they were both beating the market and they were such geniuses. And is it that we're at exactly that point again, where when you're, you know, your sixth grader who is no doubt brilliant can, can tell you to buy the big tech stocks that, that, you know, this is exactly the time where we have another, you know, like, like, like a lot of these stocks, right. When between now and when we were together, you know, there was a period of years where these things had multiple contraction, right? Like for yeah. years, they just, they made more, they generated cash flow, and the multiples contracted. I mean, same thing with, Walmart and Home Depot for for years, you know, stocks can have multiple contraction, right? Completely. And I think that I think a lot of investors have forgotten that lesson that you can have a good business that's doing great, that produces cash. But if you buy it at too high of an entry price, it can be flat for 10 years and can still be a good business. (laughs) You know, so that I think that's that's very likely uh, one scenario we're going to be looking at. Totally. This time. Totally. Um, and any look inflation, I mean, and this is another one, right? Like I, I, I can't like, you know, um, over the last sort of year, so many allocators I know have been like, they're, they're like fighting the inflationary war. And I'm like, if, if you're fighting the inflationary war now, you know, like is, is the war, you know, or, or, or are you fighting yesterday's war? It's sort of a, you know, similar dynamic. Like it's become so dominant in terms of people's obsession. Like, do you have a view? Like, have we sort of, have we seen the peak? Yeah. I mean, look, I think some of it ties into some of the new paradigm for interest rates that we discussed. I think those things are linked. And I think for, for similar reasons, the, the, the idea of this kind of profitless scaling business model that was well-funded historically, like a WeWork, is not going to work anymore. But I look on the inflation side where I go is there, there's there's some great areas, I think, uh, to make money on inflation. And you'll never know exactly what's driving the inflation. Of course, the government spending that we discussed is a big part of it. But I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, commodity inflation on a forward looking basis, because I think partially because of the ESG stuff, these companies have underinvested uh, capital investment in terms of of new development. So I think we're going to be in a tighter supply world for energy and that's going to lead to higher prices. And then when you, you combine that with the fact that, you know, the um, equity to commodity ratio, commodity ratio is at 30 year lows, you have a nice setup uh, where, you know, you have a piece of the inflation story that I think can be monetized. Yeah. Look, I largely agree with what you, um, what you've said there. Um, entirely changing the subject, but just for fun. Um, you know, I love literature, uh, fr- French literature and other literature, but, um, any, any, but doesn't have to be that, that sort of esoteric, um, any, any, any favorite book you've read recently or one that, that long-term stands out? <laughs> it's not, I don't want to disappoint you. It's not French literature. Yeah, that's, um, that's all good. I, you know, I love, you know, Mike, I love, I love biographies of people I respect. I think, so much can be learned. I ripped through those. You know, I thought Lowenstein's book on Buffett was amazing. I thought Isaacson's book on uh, Steve Jobs was amazing. Uh, more recently, Jason Riley wrote a bio on uh, Thomas Sowell, who's who's one of my heroes. So 
um, I get a lot out of those biographies. I think biographies of great people, you, you can't go wrong. You'll, you'll always, you'll always learn something. Yeah. Uh, that's a fair point. I'll, I'll never forget. Like I read Ron Chernow's Titan on John D Rockefeller. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, it's just so voluminous. I think it took me the summer, but, um, I, I, I so yeah. That, yeah. I, I, as, as I've gotten older, I, I used to, to fight through books that I, that weren't page turners and I've, I've kind of stopped, you know, with this, I have to finish it mentality. I've, I've moved beyond that. If I, if it's painting me to read a page, I, I move on to the next book at this point. Well, basically what you're saying is you've learned to cut the losses, cut the cut losses. Your losses yes. in it's a, <laughs> a risk management strategy. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. There you go. Uh, advice for allocators and investors. If you have any, aside from invest in Greece and, you know, um, you know, I think that's a good question because it ties into a lot of the things we've talked about. Try your best to set up um, a situation where you can truly invest with good managers for the long term. So try to move away from the short term focus, whether that's in how you set up the compensation in your organizations, how you set the incentives. Um, I think your longer term returns will will really benefit from that. And then secondarily, I, I think every allocator right now should be sitting down and thinking through where we are with this new cycle that we've talked about inflationary interest rates you know deficits i think you know most dangerous words in in investing right this time is different um but there are times where it actually is different and when cycles change and i think you can make the argument or at least have to think through whether this is one of those times and what that means for your portfolio i mean it's kind of funny you know when we started in the business and i think it's probably taught at, at columbia business school and others is you know this this discount you pay for illiquidity right that was kind of a mantra and and almost a truism and the number of allocators i've talked to who now kind of think in the i'll pay a premium for illiquidity because then I don't have to report month to month and it just makes my life easier. I think that's been a big reason why so many of these endowments and others have moved to private investments. And I, I think maybe you need to rethink that. Uh, sure. It's great to not to have to see a down month, but being tied up in illiquidity um, can be very painful if you're too heavily allocated there. Oh, we, I, I mean, I, we teach that. It, I couldn't agree more. We teach that at our class at Columbia business school, which is, you know, it's it's like it to me. It's like the housing bubble, right? Everyone was complicit: the Fed, the government, politicians, the buyers who bought the the sellers, the bankers, the lenders. Um, you know, with illiquidity, to me, everyone's complicit as well. It's like if you're an allocator and you're in private and public equities, and you know you have a year like last year where your public equities are down, you know, fifteen percent on average of the S and P, and and your private equities are sort of flat or marginally up, even maybe or marginally down. Of course, you know, will you look better to your investment committee and and everyone else by being able to say, look, uh, our performance is flattish or or marginally up or only down a little bit. Look, we've outperformed, um, yeah. you know. So it's this total misalignment of incentives where, right? They're not incented to. I mean, intuitively they know that doesn't make sense, right? You have more levered, more leveraging your private portfolio. They're younger, more volatile companies, yet they're not down as much. But you're not incentivized to kind of dig a little and ask why that is. Yeah, or I'll never forget. Like I, this example I've cited in some pieces I've written. Like I'll never forget during the GFC. Um, we owned in, in, in a fund, we owned, um, 
We we owned a we owned a manager that had uh it, it had private investments in autos and financials, and it's like, wait, let me get this straight. The, the autos and financials are all going bankrupt, exactly, and and somehow your portfolio is only down X percent. Explain that. <laughs> uh, sounds like a genius to me. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, look, what didn't anything we we're running out of time, but anything we didn't discuss that, that I should have asked you or you're discussing with other investors or you think is interesting that you want to mention? Um, look, I think we hit on a lot of the key topics. I think, you know, my focus is on Greece. My focus is on energy. Look, I think there's something, I think we haven't seen the end of the story on real estate and obviously commercial real estate has been in the, been in the, in the news a, a bunch, but hey, to me, the high, you know, the fastest and highest interest rate rise ever followed by 20 years of complacency and free money it doesn't end with a whimper it ends with a bang and and it's kind of a longer conversation but we it should be time should be spent figuring out if you can where where the landmines sit because i think they're out there right now yeah i couldn't agree more uh i think the opportunity set in stress distressed real estate will be immense i mean i think some some my, my understanding is for example some commercial real estate in manhattan like class let's say class b c d office buildings in suboptimal locations there there's no price that you can pay where it's economical to reposition them at this time um they it just doesn't work right um but then on the other side of that coin there's going to be some uber well located class a where it's just a simply simply the it has the wrong capital structure and and if you can get in there in the on a stressed or distressed basis that can have an immensely op, op, positive return right i think you know maybe we finish with a Buffett quote. It's this most famous one, right? When the tide goes out, you see he's not wearing any clothes. I think a lot of these asset classes all did well because of non-manager specific or alpha specific or or strategy specific reasons over historically. And I think prospectively, it will not be as uniform. And you're going to see some real divergence, those who own the right assets at the right prices and and the opposite, right? So that that's where we're going to see some diversion. Agree. On that, uh, ending on a sort of a Buffett quote, obviously a, a, a fellow Columbia Business School alum and, and right, perfect nice tie in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, and I've seen him speak there. And then, and, and anyway, we had the Buffett bet at, at Protege, obviously. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of Buffett connections. Um, look, Paul, we'd like to thank you for the super interesting discussion, sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. Uh, we hope listeners have a better appreciation for what one of our more thoughtful, you know, real-time practitioner, um, in long-term investors is, is thinking about and how, how you may benefit from this. Uh, this is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode where we speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into improving alpha via innovation. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing ESG and Technology, sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial Asset Managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, OCIOs, and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.